And so we turn the page today and we're in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, you see Saul coming, encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, he's knocked off his horse. Jesus himself re- uh, reveals himself to Paul. Uh, Paul is, uh, is dramatically converted. Uh, he's blind. He goes off. He, he, he then receives his sight. And that all happens at the beginning of chapter 9. But I want to concentrate on the verses after that, from verse 19, verse down to through to verse 31, on what happens to Paul after his conversion. What's happened to this guy who is a new believer? I said Saul encounters Jesus and uh, had a radical conversion because it was a very radical conversion. Here we have a guy rounding up Christians, throwing them into jail, breathing out threats, and overseeing murders who's become a Christian. It is radical. But I would say if you would this evening call yourself a follower of Christ then your conversion story is equally radical. We must be careful that we don't ever underestimate our own conversion. I used to wish I had a Paul-like story to tell. You know, I, had, I wished I'd had a life of total and unbelievable chaos, which God broke into, threw me off a horse, turned me around in a moment. That would be a testimony worth sharing, as opposed to the one which started off with, I was raised in a family with Christian parents, which is the one I actually had. That doesn't sell many books. doesn't get many followers, does it? It's, but the reality is if we read Scripture, every conversion we read there, when we read about it, it's a radical one. The Bible describes transformation in radical terms. It says we have moved from death to life. Galatians 2 says we died to the law, so now we live for God. Galatians 5 said we were in slavery, but now we are in freedom. Ephesians 2 said we were dead in our sins. Not terminally ill, not a little bit dead in our sins, but now we're alive in Christ. It says we are separated, but now we're brought near. Ephesians 2 also goes on to say, we were foreigners and strangers, but now we are fellow citizens. Colossians 1, we were alienated, but now we're reconciled. 1 Peter 2 said, once we were not a people, now we are a people. Once we did not receive mercy, now we have seen mercy. You know, these are extremes that have taken place when we come to Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we move from death to life, from darkness into light. You see, for us, we kind of want to take our stories and we want to grade them. You know, there's, the, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's little sins, aren't there? There's, there's, there's little white lies and, you know, there's throwing the odd sickie at work when we're not really. You know, maybe a couple of tax dodgers and, you know, we, we keep coming down the sta- scale. Maybe some fraudsters, you know, drug dealers, Man United fans. You know, we kind of, all of us, the Bible says, have fallen short All of us are radically saved. No one is righteous, not one. We all come to God with mess. And every one of us comes to God with some degree of mess. When I was, when we were, oh, a few years ago, now Elise was quite young. She'd probably, what, two, two and a half. Tom was about six and a half. We were back from Zimbabwe and we were, we were visiting a number of churches and just kind of catching them up with where we were up to. And we were invited down to the New Forest um, to go and speak at a church there. 
The idea was we're going to drive down on the Saturday, uh, we'd have a supper there with them, and then we'd, I'd speak on Sunday morning. Our journey down there was horrendous. It was the worst journey. The car had overheated by the time we got to Northampton, and we would had to get that fixed. We'd stuck in two traffic jams. There'd been two very difficult accidents. And I don't know, four or five hours into this three-hour journey, we'd only got as far as Newbury. We tried to keep the kids going. You know what it is as parents, you try, you, you know, we're feeding them biscuits and, and juice and biscuits and juice, thinking we've just kind of got to get them there and then we'll have supper. But we got to Newbury and we just realized this is not going to happen. So we pulled over, we parked the car and, uh, and we, we walked into McDonald's and we plonked Elise on the counter as we were looking to order. Elise turned a shade of green, and then there was, how do I say it delicately, an eruption. There was projectile vomit, and there was projectile vomit in volumes that I had never previously witnessed, given that I was a nurse in intensive care, even then. And this was the stickiest vomit you have ever experienced. My wife is pretty queasy. In fact, whenever the kids were sick, I would deal with that. That wasn't her thing at all. And this, this vomit was everywhere. It was over the till, it was over the counter, it was all over the lady serving us. It was everywhere. In that moment, my little two-year-old daughter just put out her, her hands to her mum and said one word, hug. Now, given my wife's queasiness, I was quite interested to see how this was going to play out. And in that moment... Joe picked, scooped her up, hugged her, kissed her, embraced her, and completely ignored the vomit. I was disappointed. <laughs> but that's what God's like with us. When we come to Jesus, he will embrace us. He will accept us. He will take us in our mess. We don't have to clean ourselves up in some way in order to be acceptable to Jesus. When we come to him, he will embrace us. He will bring us radically into relationship with him. We need to come. We need to come in all of our honesty, in all of our mess. That happened to me when I was 13 years old. My dad was a dairy farmer, um, so I grew up kind of milking cows and smelling of silage. And um, our lives was, were really built around the, around the farm. Uh, one, uh, one summer, we just finished harvest, and so we went away on holiday for a week. We went down to the coast and stayed with my uncle and my cousins. Sunday afternoon came, and it was a lovely day, and so they decided we'd, everyone would go for a swim, except my brother and I, who decided, no, we'd rather go and play tennis. And so we said goodbye, and they went down to the beach. And that was the last I saw my dad, because he drowned in the sea that afternoon. Over the next few days and weeks, we watched the livestock being sold, the hardware in the farm was sold, and six months later, the farm was sold. And we lost everything. All we had was my mum and my brother. We moved house, we moved schools. What transpired for me was some real pain and frustration. My dad was a believer. He was an elder in the church. And people would say, you know, 
It's, it's wonderful, the hope we have in heaven. It's wonderful that your dad is now with Jesus. When you're 13 years old, it's not wonderful at all. It sucks. And I raged with everyone. And then one Sunday, my mum said, okay, it's time for church. And I said, I'm not going. I don't want to go. And she had the wisdom. She was only 33. And I wonder where she, you know, she must have broken her heart that her son no longer wanted to go to church. But she said, okay, if you don't come, will you do one thing for me? Will you read your Bible? So I promised her that I would. And she had the wisdom to leave the Bible out on the kitchen table at Habakkuk chapter 3. And I took my Bible and I was standing in an empty cow shed looking out at fields which had not been plowed. And I read the words, though the fig tree does not bud and there's no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stall, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. And I would love to tell you that at that moment I got down on my knees and I wept and I said, Lord Jesus, take me, I'm yours. And I actually said, God, if you want me to rejoice in this, you are out of your tree. And God and I went to war. And we went to war for several months. And it was only several months later that I was sitting on the beach where my father had died. In utter brokenness, I said, God, I'm coming to you because I've nowhere else to go. And in that moment, God embraced me in my pain. God embraced me in my anger, and God embraced me in my grief. And he called me son, and he became my father. And he turned my life around. Jesus will always accept us. Will always forgive us in our mess. He forgives us our sins. But not only that, he forgets about our sins. Isn't that wonderful? God forgives us, but he also forgets. I wouldn't want to go to heaven if Jesus remembered, would you? You know, I used to have this idea of what it would be, you know, I'd be sitting up in heaven and, and they'd say, ah, Stephen Jack, yes, you are forgiven, but we'd like to go over the record. You know, there'd be some kind of great video screen up and some video would, some movie of my life would be playing and all the dirty, rotten, stinking things that I had ever done would be flashed up on this screen and my mother would be there. You know, that, that, was, that was the horror of heaven for me. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus not only forgives us, he forgets about our sins. It says he's buried in the deepest sea. It is remembered no more. And not only that, he clothes us in his righteousness. What does that mean? It just basically means all the good things that Jesus ever did are imputed to us, are accredited to us. We look as good to the Father as his own son, Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Why are we not more excited? <laughs> it's kind of, this is tremendous. That God forgives, he forgets, and he clothes me in his righteousness. I always say, I wish my wife no harm, but when I get to heaven, I want her there. Because when they open the book... And, it said, and, and listed under my name all the good things that Jesus ever did, she'll say, you didn't do all those things, and I'll say, it's his book. <laughs> he clothes us in his righteousness. 
If you are a Christ follower this morning, that's your story. That's your radical transformation. The question we're going to ask ourselves is, what are we doing with that? How is that changing us? How is that altering our lives? The fact that we've been through this amazing encounter of God's grace that we didn't deserve, but which he freely gives. Saul had a mighty encounter with Jesus. What did he do with it? What was Saul like in the early days of being a Christian and in following Christ? You see, this is an important, this is an important junction in Scripture because Saul went on to become Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament you have in front of you. He established a church and the structure of the church leadership that we still follow today. He took the gospel to the Gentiles. He took it to, to the Roman Empire. And so it went from a pagan empire to a Christian empire all through the work of this young man. So what were the key things for Saul that he did in those early days of following Jesus that laid a foundation for God to use him to shape the Bible, to shape the church, and to shape culture and the society of his day? That's the question I want to ask this evening. But before that, I want to look at one theological truth that runs through Paul's teaching in Scripture and to underpin all that we're going to say. You see, Paul, years later, went on to write to a church in Corinth that was behaving particularly badly. And he kind of double-clicks on this idea of imputed righteousness, this righteousness of being clothed in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ which is accredited to us. What that means is that Jesus paid it all. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. He walked into a resurrection life that we could never attain. And then he gifts all of that to us for free. He gifts us imputed righteousness. He takes the wrath of the Father on the cross so we never have to experience that wrath and all of the righteousness he's achieved through living that perfect life he gives to us, his followers. And this is how Paul described what happened to him, his salvation in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Amazing. What is the choice that Scripture gives us in terms of newness? Is it is to believe or not? You can't earn it. You can't grow into it. You believe or not. And Saul is saying to the guys in Corinth, guys, at the moment you accept Jesus, when you have said, I am not enough, but you are enough, then God says, then you are new. The key is to accept that and to live in the knowledge of that. And that's where obedience comes from. You don't obey your way into newness. You believe your way into newness. And therefore, you obey. The gospel is is scandalous. 
What part do I play? Believe. Yep, I believe, and then what else? You see, I've laid, before we've even read the scriptures, I've tried to lay a quite a significant foundation of grace this morning. Because we're going to talk about some of the things that Paul did when he first became a Christian. And if I start with that, you guys are just going to go away and think, okay, these are six more things that I need to add to my to-do list tomorrow that I've heard in church, more things that I've got to do in order to please God. And it's like, no. You do these things because of grace. You do these things because Christ has gifted those things to you. And because he's gifted those things to you, you want to do those things. Thomas here at school, if you want to define the object of misery, it was Thomas in double Afrikaans. (laughs) He hated double Afrikaans. He couldn't get his head around it, he couldn't get his heart around it, and he definitely couldn't get his tongue around it. One day, he just put his books down. He said, Dad, I don't know if this was a language or a disease of the throat. This was just so difficult for him. And one day, I was talking to someone at church and say, you know, Tom's really struggling with his Afrikaans. He said, ah, Stephen, what you need to do is you need to send him down to the west coast of South Africa and stick him in a little town like Friedenburg and leave him there where no one speaks any English. Then he'll learn Afrikaans. And I said, no. (laughs) What he needs to do is fall in love with an Afrikaans girl. (laughs) Because that changes everything. This is not something I have to do. This is something I get to do. Afrikaans moves from being a disease of the throat to the language of love. This is, this, is, this is the opportunity for now for me to express myself to this beautiful Afrikaans girl in front of me. Now I want to learn the language. I want to know how I can speak it. But see, that's the difference here. This isn't something we have to do in order somehow to be right with God. This is something we get to do. It's the language of love. Because when we appreciate just how much grace God has given us, just how little we deserve his favor, just how much he has poured into us, we want to say, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I, whatever the cost, I'll be there. We have to accept that if we are a Christ follower, we are a new creation. But then comes the implications of of this creation. So, we've finally got to Acts chapter 9, verse 19. We're going to pick it up. Rather than read the whole passage, I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit. I hope that's okay. So, here we go. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Okay, first observation this evening is... A new creation gets a new community. Saul just doesn't run out on his own. He doesn't think, hey, I've had the most radical conversion in the history of radical conversions. It's me and Jesus. We're just going to hang out at Costa. That's going to be church for me. That's where he's my own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where did we get that phrase from? It's not in the Bible. We made it up. Saul knows As the rest of us should know, that Christianity was never designed to be a solo sport. It's not an individual endeavor. When you are made a new creation, you are grafted into a new community of believers known as the church. And the church is wonderful, and the church is frustrating, and the church is spectacular, and the church is annoying. But if you've crossed the line of faith, you are in it. You're either a useful member 
or you're one that the rest of us are having to carry. You don't get to choose Jesus and not get his bride. Jesus said, this is my bride. I'm, I'm returning for my bride, the church. And when you become a follower of Jesus, you can do that. It's not like you can go up to the, oh, that guy is a great guy, but his wife, what a dog. But that's how some people live in relation to the church. You know, I like the guy, Jesus, but the church, pfft, I'll have nothing to do with that. You don't get that choice. Paul describes the church when he talks about it. He talks about it not as an institution. He talks about it as a body where everyone's joined and plays their part. He talks about it as a family. Both of these analogies are saying is you're part of it. You're part of the family of God. You might be the dysfunctional drunken uncle that no one wants to have for Christmas, but you're still part of the family. You're part of the deal. Paul recognizes this, and so he plugs into community straight away. It's the first thing he did. Let me hang out with other Christ followers, because he knows he needs that. Um, he'd be better than being on his own. I mean, what is this thing that we come to each Sunday evening? You know, is it kind of a bit of a social club? You know, we pay our tithes, we expect the toilets to be clean, or is that golf club? No, it's a body, it's a community, it's a family. So if you think you can kind of do the splash and dash, if I pitch up, you know, two minutes after Jeremy does the greet your neighbor awkward moment um, every, every Sunday evening, and if I can nip out in the final hymn before we actually stay for anything, that's not what it means to be part of the, the, the body. You won't get, but you won't know, you won't be known. There's a model in the early church for meeting in the temple courts and in each other's home. They understood the need for community, for doing life together, for sharing life together. If you try and do this thing on your own, you will fail. It was never designed to be a solo race. The whole point of the gospel is it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. And over the 20 years that I've been a pastor, I have seen more people give themselves. The more that people give themselves in the community, the more they'll grow in grace. The more they'll grow in their love of Christ. The more they'll grow in their gifts. And the more they will grow as they experience favor. It makes no sense to roll in and roll out on a Sunday. I'm telling you, you won't grow. Statistically, you will remember about 3% of what I've said this evening. And most, for most of you, it'll just be the inappropriate humor, which won't do you any good at all. How are you going to grow? You're going to get into community. You're going to get into a small group. You're going to plug in. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to submit. You're going to rejoice. You're going to mourn together. Because that's what community is. Four years ago, my younger brother, Matt, um, I mentioned him earlier. He, uh, he's a triathlete. He's not built like me. Um, he's built like a sportsman. And uh, Matt decided uh, he was just going to go out and do a, 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 like a, a gentle 40Ks on his bike um, one afternoon. And he went out and he was hit by a Land Rover and died instantly on the side of the road. The days, weeks, months that followed were dreadful in mourning my brother and grieving. And people say to, you, say to me, you know, Stephen, it must have been your faith that got you through that. 
And it was in part my faith that got me through that. But you know what else got me through that? My community. My fellow eldership team. I found in the weeks and months that followed, I, I could preach and I could lead meetings and I could lead elders meetings, but I couldn't pastor. I couldn't help other people with their pain. I, ha- I had no, nothing left in me. I was emotionally empty. I had no empathy as I dealt with my own grief and agonies. When you know what they said, Stephen, we've got that. We'll pick that up for you. We'll stand in the gap while you process this, while you grieve and while you mourn and while you come to a place of peace. Can't do that on our own. We get to do that together. We provoke each other to love and good deeds. We support each other. We laugh together. We cry together. We need to move on. Verse 20. At once. There's a sermon in there. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. This guy's been a believer for 10 minutes and he's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. There is, that's the crux of the message. Jesus is who he says he is. And all who heard him, verse 21, were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? What's going on? Kind of, you know, they're effectively saying, is, is, is this kind of a brilliant espionage technique to infiltrate from the middle kind of thing? Or is something remarkable happened to Saul? Verse 22, but Saul, incre- in, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Second observation, a new creation gets new power for ministry and should make the most of that. Saul gets a mega gift for ministry. Saul could preach, and they were flabbergasted when he did. They didn't mind when his services overran. They didn't mind when he ranted and raved a little bit. They didn't even mind when he got onto one of his hobby horses when he preached, because when he preached, something dramatic happened. Jesus was elevated. People were moved. People's lives were changed as a result. Why? Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was supernaturally gifted and equipped for ministry as a new creation in Christ. And we can look at this and we can think, oh, wow, that was amazing. What a gift Saul was. You know, he would have been, can you imagine him nowadays? You know, hashtag Saul of, Saul of Tarsus. You know, would have been able to subscribe to his YouTube channel and I'd listen to the guy and be part of, wouldn't have to be part of any community because of the Lord's anointing on this guy. You know, hashtag best breach ever. The point is that Paul, as a new creation, was empowered with a gift for ministry and you, as a new creation in Christ, have been empowered for ministry as well. And have been gifted for ministry as well. Maybe even a few gifts. What are you doing with them? There is something you can do. There's something that God has gifted you to do. There's things that only you can do like you can do it. And if you're not doing them, guess what? The rest of us suffer. 
You are supernaturally gifted by the Holy Spirit in the same way as Paul was. It might be for preaching. It might be not be. What is it? I don't know. Are you trying to find out? Are you testing the body? Are you putting to work? Are you volunteering for things? Are you giving things a go? Ah, I'm really, really good at that. Uh, Or they shouldn't have released me onto those kids. You know, are you giving Zach a hard time saying, mate, I'm here. I want to serve. I want to play my part. I want to use my gift. What can I do? Is that what you do? Because this is quite key. You know, and some of you might come up to me afterwards and tell me, oh, once I did a spiritual gifts course once and I came out as the color purple. You know, or you did the 20 steps to finding out your spiritual gifts, which might have been helpful but might not have been, because I don't think all of the gifts that God gives to the body are actually listed in Scripture. Why not? Because every time Paul comes up with a list, it looks entirely different. Sometimes there's a, list, there's a gift of administration. Sometimes there's a gift of hospitality. I think there are gifts there that are unique that are not listed. What is the one thing that you're really good at? I had a lady work with me. Her name was Robin, Robin Head. She had the gift of Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> there is seriously nothing about Excel spreadsheets she doesn't know. In fact, it's rumored that Bill Gates calls her if he's got a problem. And flip, she transformed our church. We became efficient. People knew what each other were doing. We had accounts. You know, she just had everything ordered. And it seemed at a click of a button, she could give me the list of everyone in the church who had an outie belly button. It was that kind of detailed information, and she captured it all, and it was, she used it for the kingdom. We need artists, we need photographers, we need accountants, we need attorneys. We need all kinds of gifts in the body so that the body can grow into maturity and so that Jesus can be proclaimed in this suburb, in this city, and in the neighboring towns and cities. Have you got it? And if you have, what are you doing with it? Are you sitting on your gift and the rest of us suffering as a result? I'm coming to terms with the gifts God has given me. They're no better or worse than my wife's gifts. She can organize, and she owns a labeling machine, and she has more storage boxes than Ikea. And it's a huge gift to our kids' ministry. What is yours? We need it, and we need to bring it. Gifts count, and we're all and poorer if we're not bringing and blessing others with it. So you think, ah, oh, Stephen, this sounds like another sign up to serve and sign up to join a life group type of sermon. And I thought it was all about grace. It's actually all about giving you joy. The people who we see growing most in Christ, people in community and people who are in ministry. People have the most joy, the people in community and the people who are exercising their gifts in ministry. It's actually bad for us just to sit on the side I chat with people who are struggling with their devotional lives, struggling with worship, finding it hard to pray. What have they got in common? Increasingly, the pressure of life and capacity issues has meant that they've withdrawn from community and they've withdrawn from small group and they're not regularly praying with others or opening the word together. Paul understood right away he had to find community and he had to use his gift for the glory of God. The benefit of the church and for his own good. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Interestingly, his mates now had turned on him. We're trying to see him off. Verse 24. But their plot became known to Saul. This, uh, they, were, they were watching the city gates day and night in order to kill him. 
Paul had learned of his plans. So verse 25, his disciples took him by night and, and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Third point here is a new creation faces opposition. Not everyone is delighted at Paul's new conversion. Tim Keller says this, if we don't have anyone opposing you because of your pursuit of Christ, then you're probably not doing anything of significance in your pursuit of Christ. It's by design. Jesus came and they killed him. The early apostles and they killed them. The early church fathers and they killed them. Through pain, we count the cost. My family, as I said, moved to Zimbabwe. We'd been there a couple of years. I think Thomas was uh, eight and Naomi and Elise. No, Thomas was six and Elise hadn't been born very long when a gang got into our house. I was out at a conference. They cleared out the house of everything of any value and they beat my wife with an iron bar while she was holding our baby. And Thomas watched sitting on the bed. Through that pain, we had to count the cost. We finished up our time in Zimbabwe and then our time would come to move on and, and we were saying to the Lord, what, what do you have for us next? Where do you want us to go next? And there were opportunities in other parts of the world, but we thought we would be coming back to the UK. And then one day, um, PJ and Ash, um, who led the church we were in in Zimbabwe, called us around for breakfast and said, listen, we believe God has called us to Johannesburg to plant a new church, and we believe he's called you to come with us. And at that point, my heart leapt so that I would love to go and be part of a team to plant a church in that great city. And the other half of me thought, but I cannot possibly ask my wife to move to the housebreaking capital of the world. I thought Joe would either say, no, we're not coming, or, well, we need to talk and pray about that. But she didn't even look at me. She looked straight at PJ. And she said, we're in. We'll come. She said, if that's the cost, then I choose Christ. It wasn't easy. If that's the pinnacle of my persecution in this life, in pursuit of my Savior, then it's cheap at the price that he paid for me. I'm not asking you to earn your salvation through sacrifice. You are saved. I'm asking it, how do you pursue that salvation? We don't seek out opposition, but when it comes, we're not surprised. We're not discouraged. And we're not perplexed. Verse 26. And when he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was really a disciple. Can you imagine um, Paul, this persecutor of Christians who'd overseen the death of Stephen, that they would have all have known, he's now rocked back up into Jerusalem and someone's brought him to your home, to your life group. You brought him 
to my house. You can imagine, let's say, let's open in prayer. It's like, there's no way I'm closing my eyes with that dude around. They're struggling to understand what's going on. And he's struggling to get grafted into the community. It's not all easy for Paul. He's facing some opposition. My fourth point needs some explanation. A new creation grows in maturity in the seemingly mundane. That's what I was talking to earlier when Jeremy was asking some questions. You see, between verse 25 and verse 26, when Paul went from back, when Paul went to, verse 26, when Paul went to Jerusalem, there is a gap from being lowered over the wall in Damascus to arriving in Jerusalem. That gap was three years. Luke doesn't tell us about it. The only reason we know about it is because Paul tells them about it in the story in Galatians 1 when he talks about traveling um, to, from Damascus to Jerusalem. There is a gap of about three years. He tells the Galatians, hey, I, I kind of went, went to Bible college. I really kind of sat through equivalent of a three-year degree in theology. He was sitting in the deserts of Arabia and le- relearning the scriptures that he had learned. He's schooling himself there in Arabia. He's reading Genesis. Oh, I can't believe it. It's all about Jesus. And Exodus. Oh, I can't believe I missed all of that. It's all about Jesus. And Leviticus, it's full of some whack stuff and Jesus. And Deuteronomy, it's all about goats and Jesus. And Numbers, it's about counting. Flip, if only Robin Hare had been there with her Excel spreadsheet when that book was written. And Jesus. See, we live in this instant success culture. I want it, and I want it now. You know, I wanted God to do great things in me and through me and today and right now. And I did the prayer, and I did the wobbly thing, and I came forward, and I got goosebumps. And I raised my hands in worship. Change me now, God. Sort it out now. And God does work in the now, but God works in his time. And God will do things when he wants to do it. Everything is getting faster. Everything is getting quicker. Everything is more instant. But God doesn't work in our time frames. He works in his. And his time frames are often really long. Why? Because he's eternal. He looks at our 70 years. It's like, it means very little to me. I'll work it out in my time and in my framework. What season of life are you in in your life? Maybe you'd like to do something remarkable for Christ right now, but you kind of feel like, actually, I feel like I'm in the desert of Arabia. Question is, are you maturing there? Eugene Peterson describes the Christian life of following Christ as long obedience in the same direction. When God called us to Zimbabwe, we were super excited. We were so looking forward to getting out there, serving God, changing the world. Yay! We actually had a farewell service at our church and they prayed for us, laid hands on us and sent us off. Um, we just, we'd applied for our work permit. We were going to come through any day now. We'd quit our jobs. We'd got our house packed up, uh, ready to rent out because we were on our way and uh, just waiting for the visas. One year later, we're still waiting for those visas. 
It was a terrible life. We were existing week to week by picking up, I was picking up shifts as a, you know, uh, as an ag on the agency, as an agency nurse. My wife was working as a supply teacher. We were ready to go. People would say to us, oh, I'd invite you to our wedding if I thought you'd still be here. We're trying to kind of find like this whole year we're missing out on life. But I grew more. I wouldn't have wished it away. I matured more in that year than ever I would standing on a platform. And I'd go back to God and say, you know, God, it's that Zimbabwe thing. Have you really called us? And he'd say, yes, Stephen, I've called you. And I'd say, well, where's my visa? And the next week, God, can I just remind you of that? Are you sure you've called us? Yeah, I've called you. I want you in Zimbabwe. Well, well could you organize our visa? We want it in our time frames and in our world. What season are you in? Don't wish it away. So often single people think, you know, I'm going to do something significant for God when I'm married. And then they get married and then maybe his wa the wife doesn't think that's quite as significant as they wanted to. Before you know it, they're laying on the couch in their trekkie pants watching reruns of Call the Midwife. Do something for God now. Or you think, I'll do something for God when I've had kids. And then they have one, two, and three kids and then spend 18 years going, oh, it's just what's going on? What are you doing now in the season you find yourself? Will you mature in the seemingly mundane? You see, Paul's going to disappear from our story. When we pick up the story next week in our series in Acts, we'll be back to Peter. The next time we hear from Paul is 10 years later. He's got saved. Then there's a three-year gap while he studies. Then he goes to Jerusalem, and then there's a 10-year gap before we hear from him again. 13 years in the early, early Christian walk of Saul, he becomes Paul that we know nothing about. But it all counts as we go through it with Christ. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Verse, twen verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching uh, both in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disciples against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Fifth point, a new creation gets a new mission. The Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The message of the Bible is it's actually not about you. God is for you. You are important, but you're not the main, you're not the main object. God is ultimately about God and everything is for his fame and for his glory. God is about his own glory. You want to enjoy life? Live for a purpose bigger than yourself. No one's going to tell you this. Everyone's going to tell you it's all about you. Your parents told you it was all about you. They sent you off to school where they told you it was all about you. You read magazines that tell you all about you. You watch Oprah who says it's all about you. You listen to the radio and it's telling you it's all about you. Everyone says it's all about you and how you feel. The Bible says it's all about Jesus. You see, living for you isn't bringing you much joy. So maybe live for God because he's eternal. He doesn't change. He's stable. He doesn't have meltdowns. He doesn't put on weight. 
He's unchangeable. He's dependable. Your purpose in life, if you are a Christian, is not to achieve self-actualization as Maslow would have you believe. Your purpose is to testify to the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ in your life. That's why you are here. Spurgeon says this, every person in this room is either a missionary or an imposter. He goes on to say, it cannot be that you have a high appreciation of Jesus, but a totally silent tongue about him. That man says, I believe in Christ, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is quite simply an imposter. My final point in verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, uh, sorry, then the church yeah, throughout Judea and Galatia and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it multiplied. Final point, new creations make for new churches. The church is strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. They understand grace, they're new creations, and they grow in number as a result. Why? Because people who get grace tend to give grace. Found people, find people. When the gospel bursts out amongst a group of people, you can't stop the church from growing. And this is really... That last scripture is really a prayer, and I know that the leaders of this church pray these things for this church. They pray that for each one of you, you would be strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. They pray that we would enjoy a season of peace in this great city. They pray that you guys would live in the fear of the Lord, that, he would, uh, that, that you would know that he has done great things for you, that he has paid the price, and that you are new creations, and you would live in a new way as a response. And they pray unashamedly that you would grow in number. The church is the body of Christ. The church is what God is about. We had a young couple in our church get married in Johannesburg. And they got married at a school called St. John's College. Uh, St. John's is a very old school and uh, it's got a really lovely chapel and they wanted to get married there. Um, the only problem is that the chapel is quite some distance from wh- away from where you can park the car. And just as the bride pitched up, there was the mother of all storms swept in. And there are storms and there are Joburg storms. And this was a Joburg storm. And the car circled once and circled twice and this storm was not going away. Nick was standing at the front of church waiting for his bride. What took place was wonderful and awful and everything in between. The four bridesmaids, mustering coats, umbrellas, and anything else they could get hold of, managed to get the bride from the car and to the church, spotless, looking as beautiful as she had been when she left home on the way. They, however, (laughs) looked the complete opposite. Never has there been a more beaten, bedraggled, 
hair everywhere, drenched bridesmaids' outfits, makeup running everywhere, disaster. None of them wanted their photos taken. <laughs> but they presented the bride, beautiful, to her husband. And what an incredible illustration of what it means for us to present the bride, the church, to Jesus when he returns, as beautiful as she can be. And, and, and if we get a bit of a battering on the way, if there's a bit of a cost to pay on the way, if we don't look as comfortable and as beautiful as we had planned, and they had planned that hair and makeup for months, then so be it. Grace London, I am calling you off the stands and into the game. I'm calling you to make it count because of grace, because of all that Christ has done for us. And so we're going to respond to this together. We're going to respond by taking communion. Jesus says, as often as you do this, you remember me. Why did he institute communion? Because he knows that we forget about grace. He knows that we forget just what Christ did for us in the busyness and the hustle and bustle and things. And that's why like, every time you get together, guys, take this thing. Because what it does, it brings you back to grace, undeserving favor. It brings you back to imputed righteousness. It brings you back to the fact that I didn't deserve it. But when I come to Jesus in all my mess, he embraces me. And you need to be reminded of that. Because I don't know about you, but I get full of my own self-importance and I get full of my own how busy my life is and I think my troubles are bigger than anybody else's. But that tells me, you know what? It's all about Jesus. It's not about you and that's why we take it. And we're going to sing. And we're going to sing like we're new creations. And new creations sing loudly with their hands in the air with total abandonment, with like raging charismatics because the gospel's pretty exciting, isn't it? Because of what my Jesus has done and I'm going to tell him that as I sing and then we're going to get into community and we're going to stay for a, as they bry some burgers and we're going to meet one another and we're going to offer our gift and we're going to speak to someone that we don't currently know and we're going to show the grace to others that God has given us ourselves because that's community and that's where it's at. Shall we do that? To the glory of our great King and for our own good. Let me pray for us.